0: The chase movie takes several forms. You have the action-adventure, like Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Indiana Jones is in hot pursuit of Rene Belloc. Or you might have the paper chase in Pixar's Ratatouille, where Remy races from the kitchen with Suey Chef Skinner hot on his... tail. Then you have a foot chase in Catherine Bigelow's Point Break, with Johnny Utah hunting down the bank robbers known as the Dead Presidents, all the way through a Los Angeles suburb. Most recently, you have Hardcore Henry, where Henry brings us with him in his first-person camera as he, we, search for his wife who has been kidnapped by gangsters. Or, to shift down a few gears, you have Roger Mitchell's Notting Hill, where Peter Thacker careens across London to catch Emma Scott before she jets off to another city. If you think I'm stretching the definition there, bear in mind that in the rom-com, the whole picture is a chase. But for the most part, when you mention a chase scene in a movie, People invariably think of cars, and when they think of car chases, they think of San Francisco and Bullet, Or the fleet of Mini Coopers careening around Torino in The Italian Job. Or a white Dodge Challenger packing a 7.2-cylinder V8 burning rubber across the Midwest in Vanishing Point. Or the mother-of-all pile-ups in Chicago, caused by the cop-dodging Blues Brothers. Or, in this century, Jason Bourne screeching and skidding around Paris, Moscow and Manhattan or Mad Max and an armada of fuel-guzzling mega-engines thundering down Fury Road. And faster than them all, you have the French Connection. Only the chase in the French Connection doesn't involve cars. It has a car, but it's chasing a train. Released in 1971, The French Connection is adapted from a non-fiction book penned in 1969 by Robin Moore, recounting events that happened seven years earlier when a consignment of heroin with an estimated street value of $32 million that's over a quarter of a billion in today's money was smuggled through the New York docks. The rights to Moore's book were acquired by producer Philip D'Antoni, who had to that date produced only one other feature film, Bullet. Released in 1968, Peter Yates and Steve McQueen had set a seemingly insurmountable benchmark in the action stakes with an instantly legendary near-ten-minute sequence when four wheels sped cinema audiences faster than they'd ever gone before. Such stuff is the envy of other filmmakers, and so it should come as no surprise that when D'Antoni hired in William Friedkin, it was Friedkin's aim to surpass what Yates had done on the streets of San Francisco. Here is Friedkin recalling how he came up with the idea.
1: I had recently seen Bullet... And while I thought Bullet was a really had a great chase scene and is a extraordinarily great movie. In analyzing the chase scene, I saw that what they had done was merely clear the streets of San Francisco, put two cars on the streets, and run them through fast. In New York City, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets at all times. I want to integrate these crowds into the chase. And then it came to me that There had been a number of films where a car was chasing a car. And so I thought, I've got to come up with something different. My motivation was simply to find a different way to film a chase. And then while I'm walking along the streets of New York thinking about it, I hear the subway rumbling below my feet.
0: D'Antoni's decision to hire Friedkin was an odd one, because although Friedkin had already directed four feature films, none of them had been successful and none of them were remotely similar to the content of Robin Moore's book. Good Times, a musical comedy starring Sonny and Scherer, was followed by an adaptation of Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party, then another musical comedy The Night They Raided Minsky's, and finally another stage adaptation The Boys in the Band. They received mixed reviews at best, but all flopped at the box office. So what was it that D'Antoni saw in Freakin', and what made him think he was the right man to direct the project? D'Antoni was not looking for the usual approach to the crime genre. He wanted something gritty and real. And in pursuit of that, he had hired in Ernest Tidyman to adapt Moore's book. Although Tidyman had never written a script before, he had been a journalist with the New York Post and then the New York Times, before switching to fiction with his recently genre-twisting novel, Shaft. Don't jive me. We put in a lot of street time together. That was a long time back.
1: I don't know you no more. A
0: lot of hard years, man. The kind you don't forget.
1: Now I'm going to give you one minute to say what you came here to say. And after you said it, you go back out that door you came in, or I'll throw you out.
0: Critics noticed the urgency about Tideman's prose that made Shaft's story visceral and real. And that was when D'Antoni noticed an important, but hitherto overlooked detail in Frequency CV. Friedkin had started out in documentaries.
1: Hey shithead, when's the last time you picked your feet, huh? Yeah, what's he talking about? I've got a man in Poughkeepsie who wants to talk to you. You ever been in Poughkeepsie? Huh? Have you ever been in Poughkeepsie? Hey man, come on, give me a break. I do what you talking on, about, eh? Let me hear you say it, come on. Have you ever been in Poughkeepsie? You've been in Poughkeepsie, haven't you? Yeah. I want to hear it, come on! Yes, yes, yes. You've been, been, been there, right? Yeah. You sat on the edge of the bed, didn't you? You took off your shoes, put your finger between your toes and picked your feet, didn't you That's that. Yes. All right. That's you put a shield my partner, you know what that means? God damn it! All went along I gotta listen to him gripe about his bowling scores. Now I'm gonna bust your ass for those three bags and I'm gonna nail you for picking your feet in Poughkeepsie.
0: So what was Friedkin going to document? By 1970, New York had been in a decade-long recession that would culminate in the city declaring bankruptcy in 1975. During that decline, factories had shut down and the entire container shipping business had moved across the Hudson River to New Jersey. The city's white middle-class population had moved out to the suburbs, buildings were left derelict, boarded up and abandoned. The city's five boroughs were victim to industrial unrest and ethnic tensions erupted. 1968 saw a nine-day sanitation strike. The subway often broke down, and when it was running, it was an underground avenue of crime. And into all that swarmed a whirl of drug dealers. In other words, by the time D'Antoni approached Freakin to make the French connection, the city was a near quagmire.
1: 89% pure junk. Best I've ever seen. If the rest is like this, you'll be dealing on this load for two years. So you tell me it's worth a half million? How many kilos? 60. 60 kilos? Eight big ones a kilo, right? This stuff will take a 7 to 1 hit on the street.
0: And by the time you gets down the nickel bags, it'll be at least 32 million. Thank you, Howard. Take what's left there with you, and good night. Today, every other movie detective is a maverick the wildcard being watched by internal affairs, the cliched cop who insists on playing by his own rules, and those rules push him to within an inch of suspension. But because he gets results, or more honestly, because he is played by a major Hollywood star, the police commissioner turns a blind eye, and the audience overlooks all the laws he breaks in his relentless, obsessive determination to bring the bad guys to book. By which I mean shoot him in the climactic scene. But back in 1971, there really was no such character in the Hollywood landscape. Enter Popeye Doyle. Played by Gene Hackman, but based on real-life, real-hard cop Eddie Egan, here was a new strain of law enforcement who appealed to, and appalled, all sections of the audience in equal measure. For left-wing liberals, by systematically violating all codes and procedures, Doyle was the personification of everything wrong with American law enforcement. As for the right-wing Conservatives, Doyle was a kickback against the liberal agenda of a weak city ordinance. Six weeks after the French Connection opened in theatres, over the other side of the country in San Francisco, Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry was doing something similar. Callahan, Sir? I don't want any more trouble like you had last year in the Fillmore district.
1: Understand? That's my policy. Yeah, well, when an adult male is chasing a female uh, with intent to commit rape, I shoot the bastard, that's my policy.
0: But the Californian sun cast Harry Callahan's M.O. in a different light. There was a swaggering, strutting, self-assured grin to Eastwood's character. By contrast, Popeye Doyle, who prowled New York's wintry streets, was a darker, nastier, more obsessive, rather insecure creature. Here is Friedkin again.
1: Gene, he felt that Egan was just a racist, and he didn't want to go there. And I recognize this. And so I, it's really embarrassing. I'm, but I would say things to Gene like, we, we do a shot, and I like one take. I love one take because it's so spontaneous. And I would, instead of saying cut, I would say, oh, Jesus Christ. I'd, Are you kidding me? I would say, pal, you better get a day job. You know, you, you better look for something else, because this isn't working out.
0: Bent on creating tension and chaos on the set, Friedkin pushed Hackman across the production schedule, demanding more and more of his performance. Fractious as their partnership was, it did yield results. Not only in a visceral film, but come award season, Friedkin and Hackman walked away with gold statuettes. The film won three more Oscars. Ernest Tidyman for screenplay adaptation.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, I called my mother the other day who said, I want to see you on the stage because I'm going to watch the following night. And I, I said, those other four guys, they got mothers too. Uh, and <laughs> I'd like to say that they wrote, those other four mothers have uh, a lot of pride because there were many great scripts involved in this and I'm deeply grateful. Thank you.
0: Gerald Greenberg for Best Editing.
1: Thank you to the Academy, Phil Tony, Bill Freakin, and the New York City subway system.
0: And most prestigious of all, Best picture for producer Philip D'Antoni. Obviously a great honour to think
1: that the uh, French Connection will uh, rank with all the
0: pictures uh, that have come to uh, this particular place in the history of the Oscars. On behalf of uh, Billy
1: Freakin, I want to personally uh, thank all the members of our cast and crew, 20th Century Fox and of course the Academy. It's I still don't believe it. Thank you very much.
0: If there is one thing that separates the French connection from almost every other crime picture, it is obsession. Because Doyle's sense of justice is outweighed by a psychotic rage. Doyle may have a sidekick, Buddy Russo, played by Roy Scheider, but Doyle acts on his own authority and solely for his own edification. So intense was Hackman's performance that it all but forged a new direction in American cinema. There really is only one precedent who can match Doyle, and that is John Wayne's Ethan Edwards in John Ford's The Searchers.
1: What do you want me to do, draw you a picture? Spell it out? Don't ever ask me. Long as you live, don't ever ask me more.
0: But that was a Western where the cowboy was exploiting 19th century frontier law, wholly different from the city law in the 20th century. Without Doyle, there would be no psychotic heroes, no loners, forging their own paths, setting out on their own quests. Take Paul Kersey in Death Wish, Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, and even though they officially have partners, Martin Riggs in Lethal Weapon, Vincent Hanna in Heat, Bud White in LA Confidential, Alonzo Harris in Training Day, Henry Oak in Narc, and practically every TV cop show, all boasting their own mavericks, whose hair-triggered temperaments can be traced right back to Popeye Doyle.
1: I can pull the trigger 128 more times before this battery dies.
0: I'm telling you, I don't know anything about an attack. Stop lying to me. I'm not lying. What's the target? I can't tell you what I don't know.
1: Mr. Burnett, you are a traitor and a
0: terrorist. I'm not. I love my country. The French Connection was a hit when it was released. A sequel was made four years later, and whether on TV, video or DVD, it has always been a big seller. But then, something happened in 2009. In February of that year, the film was released on Blu-ray, and in preparation for the launch, Friedkin had personally supervised the transfer. But when people saw the result, they were appalled. What had originally looked gritty, grainy and unfiltered, now suddenly resembled a Hollywood melodrama from the 1950s. The whole thing was drenched with pastels. It was so different from the original look that the film's Oscar nominated cinematographer Owen Reutzmann lambasted the transfer as atrocious. What had happened? Friedkin said he always wanted the film to look like John Huston's adaptation of Herman Melville's novel Moby Dick.
1: The birds! The birds! He rises!
0: Once Friedkin admitted that, the cat was out of the bag, because it finally explained his take on Doyle's character. Doyle is as obsessed as Captain Ahab. And that makes Alan Charnier, the French drug smuggler played by Fernando Rey, the great white whale. And no matter how long Ahab pursues his quarry, no matter how close Ahab gets to harpooning the beast, the Leviathan simply will not be caught. And that explains why the French connection is one long chase. And that brings me to the ending, which is one of the greatest endings in the entire genre. It works in a way no other ending works, because it is over before we realise it. Friedkin so loaded the film of pursuit that when Doyle and his men surround the warehouse, we prepare ourselves for the showdown to end all showdowns. But then Doyle realises Charnier has escaped. He is long gone. So the sounds we hear, that is a sound of obsession meeting itself in a dead end. A gunshot echoing through the empty and derelict warehouse, which is a perfect metaphor for what Doyle has become.